you please turn your Bibles with me to John chapter 15? John chapter 15. When we consider the 12 apostles of the Lord, most of the deaths of the apostles are not recorded in Scripture for us. But church history has a lot to say about it. Church history has a lot to say about how the apostles, the disciples of Christ, died and suffered for his sake. Ironically, John, the author of this book, probably the only one who died of natural death in Ephesus around 100 AD. But just when you look at a few others that I'll mention for us, it was not the case for them. Peter, church, according to church history, was crucified upside down in Rome under the reign of Nero. Crucified upside down. Andrew supposedly preached in at least Asia Minor and Greece and eventually, too, was crucified at Patras in Achaia. James, the son of Zebedee, according to Acts chapter 12, verse 2, he was in Jerusalem at, at Pentecost and presumably stayed there until his execution by Herod Agrippa I. Philip, supposedly crucified in Hierapolis in Asia Minor. Thomas, strong, strong tradition speaks of, of ministry in India where he was there martyred for his faith. Bartholomew accompanied Philip to Hierapolis and was martyred after ministry in Armenia. James, the son of Alphaeus, not the brother of Jesus, he possibly ministered in Syria, and he, too, crucified. You see, these men who heard, watched, lived before their eyes the Lord Jesus Christ, these men were martyred. They're crucified, persecuted. You just ask, what resolve must you have to live and die with this kind of faithfulness? We tend to hear stories like these and write them off because they're the apostles. Yeah, it's a hard life, of course, but you know, they're the apostles. But beloved, they're mere men. They're mere men. And here in chapter 15, we're going to look at verse 26 and 27. The last two verses of this section are very crucial for these disciples, who are mere men. And yes, they have a rough road ahead of them, but they are still men. But these last two verses of this chapter are so crucial for for them. They've been encouraged by... So much that the Lord has already told them here in this upper room discourse, especially in chapter 15. Just encouragement after encouragement he told them. How do you bear fruit? How do you love one another? What is your resolve here on earth when I leave? He's given them much encouragement. And in light of all that encouragement, if they had not received the promises here in these last two verses, it would render them useless in ministry. In light of all the encouragement, if they did not have this truth they would be useless in ministry. That these last two verses are crucial for the disciples and also crucial for you, beloved. That if you're in Christ, the hope and the promise of this end is important just for you as well. As we come into the middle of our Lord's words, we're jumping here at the end. Last, last couple of weeks, we've looked at the preceding verses. But here, these last two verses, if you recall, so far, he hasn't sugarcoated anything for them, Right? He hasn't sugarcoated anything. He already told them, he gave them a clear picture of what to expect from the world. That he is departing, and they're going to remain. And he already, tell, he already told them what it's going to be like. Expect to be hated, right? Love one another, you know, abide in me, love one another, but here's the real truth. Expect to be hated. I was hated, you're going to be hated. Continue that on. Like he, he gave it to them, hard truths surrounded with encouragement, but he gave it to them straightforward. You must expect this persecution. I was persecuted. You will be persecuted. 
But still, they have this immense, immeasurable hope amidst this hate. That yes, you're going to see hatred. Yes, you're going to be persecuted. But he gave them just amounts of encouragement to realize what is the perspective as you walk through persecution? What do you keep in mind as you're being hated? What are you looking forward to? Like, What is all the hope that you have in light of the certainty that you will be persecuted? He gave them clarity to see how they should perceive this hate what they need to be reminded of, and the purpose of it. Give them rich encouragement. And now as he's departing, we still need to ask, how will the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ continue? We see the encouragement, we see the hope awaiting us, but still the question remains, he's leaving, how is this ministry going to continue? How is this ministry going to further out? How is it going to progress? How is it going to grow? How is that going to happen? And that's when he begins to answer that question. In these last two verses, verses 26 and 27. Essentially, in these verses here, we're going to examine the witness that that God himself has established to exalt his son in the world, even today, and to the point he returns. So we're going to examine just the witness that God has established to exalt his son today, and even until his son returns. And it's clear in these two verses. But first, let's read these, these two verses just to get an idea. We'll go from there. So it's for context. He's already exhorted them to abide in him, verses 1 through 11 of this chapter. He's, a, he's exhorted them to love one another in verses 12 through 17. He reminded them and even exhorted them that they're going to be hated in verses 18 through 25. And now let's look at verse 26. And when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. Let's examine here the witness that God has established to exalt his son in the world, the time of his disciples, but even today and until his son returns. The first witness is clear in verse 26. I hope it's clear to you that what is that witness that he has established? He's leaving, but now this witness is the Holy Spirit, right? That's pretty clear. So the Lord has ascended. His witness still remains. The Lord has ascended now. He's at the right hand of the Father, and his witness still remains. And that witness is the Holy Spirit. And that witness is pursuing and accomplishing his purposes. I mean, that's why you still see souls getting saved today. I mean, that is why that, that hardened atheist in your family can still be saved. That is why the, the hopeless of all hopeless in the world still can find hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because the witness still remains. He left, he says, but this witness is coming, and he has come, the person of the Holy Spirit. The witness of Christ still stands. And as a witness, the Holy Spirit is sent to do what, if you see there? He's sent to testify. To testify. And if you notice here, this testimony of the Holy Spirit, he is not to testify, in other words, to speak of himself. The Holy Spirit is not sent to testify or draw attention to himself. What is the purpose of the ministry of the witness of the Holy Spirit? He says at the end of verse 26, for he will testify about me. That Jesus says when he comes, he will not draw attention to himself, that is not his purpose, but he will testify about me, about Christ. That he will continue the work of testifying about the Lord Jesus Christ. The content, in other words, of his testimony is Christ. And this is essentially in line with what the triune God has already done up to this point. That God has sought to testify about the salvation that is found in Christ, that is open and available to anybody. To believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The triune God up until this point has testified about the Son. In this very book, in John chapter 8 verse 18, Jesus himself said that I am he who testifies about myself. That Jesus testified about himself. But then he says after that, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. That the Father testified about the Son. The Son testified about himself. And the Spirit who is coming will testify about, guess what? The Son. That this is the work to testify about Christ. He's saying here, he will come and he will testify about me. He will bear witness about me. It's like in a court of law, if a testimony is called to the stand, a, um, 
a witness is called to the stand, what is the purpose of that witness to do? To, to bear witness of the truth, right? Do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you, God. That they are called to bear witness about the truth. And in verse 26, the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of truth. He will testify of the Son who is the truth, and he will bear witness of the truth so that anyone who hears the message, they will hear and see the truth and be drawn to the truth, which is Christ. But how will the Holy Spirit do this? If we know here, this is he's sent here to do. He is the witness, the Holy Spirit. But how is he going to bear witness? Primarily, he's going to bear witness through conviction. That the Holy Spirit will bear witness through conviction. Now, though, when we think of the word conviction, we immediately think of, yeah, like a legal proceeding where you seek to convict someone in order to to indict them of wrongdoing. You want to convict them in a judicial sense of wrongdoing. And that's that's true of that sense of his ministry as well, which he will ultimately do at, at Christ's coming. But there's also the idea of convicting here that's used in Scripture to not only the judicial sense, but this idea of convicting could be used of a persuasion, of a convincing, if you will. That in order to convict someone, you're not only going to show them they're wrong, but to convict also can mean to convince them of what is true. And that's the nature of his ministry, to convince the world. If you go over to the next chapter in chapter 16, Obviously, we won't have time to look at this, but he speaks further of this ministry of the Holy Spirit. And look what he says in chapter 16, verse 8, when he's speaking of the Spirit to come. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, when the Spirit comes, he will convict, he will convince the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. He, he continues to say, Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. That when the Holy Spirit comes, he says, he will convict. In other words, and all of these things convince the world of sin. I mean, you are convincing them of their sin. That you re- you op- He's opening their eyes to realize the depth of their depravity, that they have no sort of moral value before God. He's convincing them of their sin that's already there. He's convincing them what's true, that you are a sinner. He's convicting, convincing the world, persuading them of their need of righteousness because of their sin. Now, obviously, some, even though they see their sin, some will see their sin. You tell someone that you are a sinner, that that you have sinned against the God who created you, that you are not here by accident, not by evolution, but a God placed you here. And you can tell someone that you have sinned against this holy God. And some will hear that, and some will turn their ear and turn their ear. What what are you saying? What 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 are you telling me? What are you saying about me? Who am I? And you'll begin to tell them about what Christ has done for them. And they may be drawn to the cross. And what's happening in the back? background is that the Holy Spirit is convincing them of their sin, convincing them of their need of righteousness, which they do not have, and convincing them of the judgment that is awaiting those who do not repent upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is drawing them. But some will also hear that very same message, and you tell them that you have sinned against God, that you are a sinner, and they will hate that message. And yes, even though the Holy Spirit is convicting, and he is judging, he is showing them their need of righteousness, They're refusing to listen and to hear. And even though he convinces, even though he persuades, they will stand account for what they do with that message. So they will hear that, and they will say, I can't handle it. And they will turn away from it. Essentially, this message or this ministry of the Holy Spirit, it all points to the Son. That he's testifying about Christ. He's testifying about Christ and convincing them of their sin. Because in your sin, you see, I need a sinless Savior. Convincing them of righteousness. In righteousness, I can only have a foreign righteousness, one that I don't have. It's an alien righteousness, one that's found in the perfect son of God. That This is his ministry, to point to the son. That the spirit draws you to Jesus. That what was happening when the Lord opened your eyes to the truth? What was happening when he revealed to you the depth of your sin? What was happening when he he opened your eyes to see his holiness, his glory, his majesty, his splendor? What was happening when you saw this holy God? 
And this Christ, who you probably heard about before, what was happening when you saw that he is not only the Savior, but he is Lord, and he bids every knee to bow down before him? What was happening? The Holy Spirit was working in the ministry and opening your eyes, drawing you to Christ. And that's what he says here. He will testify about me. That no one can be saved without confessing Jesus as Lord. Romans 10, 9. But as 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3 reminds us that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. People know, people can maybe know that or ascend to that mentally, but no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That's his ministry. Now, this is not obviously an exhaustive description of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We, we can't go into all, all of his ministry I mean, he, he applies the new covenant, he regenerates, he adopts, he seals, he calls, he sanctifies, he, he illuminates, he illumines, he indwells, he reminds, he constrains, so forth. But here, we see here that his ministry, one aspect of his ministry is to testify about the Son. Now, speaking of the Holy Spirit, we see what his ministry is in here in this context, to testify about the Son. But look how the Lord describes him. In the beginning of verse 26, the helper who comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. Just look at how the Lord is describing here the Holy Spirit. I think first we can see that the Lord is affirming his personhood. He is affirming his personhood, that the Holy Spirit is a person. Not a person in the sense of you thinking of like having arms and legs, like a human person. But no, speaking of a, a person in terms of being distinguished in his personal properties, that the Holy Spirit is not just a force, as some false religions would say, but he is a person. And how can we see that here in this, in this verse? Notice when he says, the end, that he will testify about me. He, he says, it's this helper whom I will send to you, the spirit of truth proceeds from the Father, but then he says, he will testify about me. That he's using, obviously, a, a, um, a demonstrative pronoun, which can be used to say, like, that one, like, bring that one over here. It can speak to, of, of an object or a force if it's using the right gender pronoun, like a neuter. And essentially, this, this kind of pronoun could be used for an animal or an object. It's like that one. Bring that dog over here. But in the way that this is used here, it's not used in the neuter form of an object or an animal. It is used in the masculine form. So he's saying, that one, or he will come to you. He will testify about me. That he's affirming his personhood, that this is a person, the Holy Spirit, who is God, very God. But he's saying here, he will testify about me. He's using the masculine gender to affirm that. I mean, scripture elsewhere says that this Holy Spirit, that he teaches, that he inspires, that he guides, that he leads, that he grieves, he can be grieved. He convicts of sin and more. And and impersonal objects do not behave in this manner. Impersonal objects do not teach. Impersonal objects do not guide. Impersonal objects do not inspire. Impersonal objects can't be grieved if it's an object. But no, he is a person. And the Lord affirms that for us. But secondly, in his personhood, you can see that he is still distinct from the Father and the Son. That the spirit, a person, is distinct from the father and the son. He is not the father and he is not the son. Interesting to note here that all three are mentioned in this, in this passage. Whom, when the helper comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you. So who's I? Jesus speaking. And I will send to you from whom? The father. That you have here a picture of the triune God just in these, this one verse of all three persons of the, tri, of the Trinity mentioned here in this passage. So he is distinct from the Father, distinct from the Son, and still God. As Jesus continues this, he says, whom I will send to you from the Father. I don't want to get too technical here, but I think it's helpful. 
when he's saying, I will send to you from the Father, he's speaking of a future tense. He's using, I will send to you in the future. He was going to come to you in the future. But then he says, at the end of it, who proceeds from the Father. So he moves from the future point, saying that, yes, he will come to you. But then he says, in the present tense, which indicates a continuous action, he proceeds from the Father. So, yes, he's coming, but he's always existed because he's always existed with God. That he proceeds from the Father. In other words, literally it means to proceed, to go out, to go forth from, to flow out. That he proceeds from the Father. He's describing his relationship with the Father. What is the relationship with? He's distinct from the Father. He flows out from the Father. And later in this book, in John chapter 20, verse 22, Jesus says, he, he breathes on his disciples and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And later on in the New Testament, for example, Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, it's speaking not only of the Holy Spirit, but it's described as the Spirit of, of Christ. And so you see here, yes, the Spirit that proceeds from the Father is also proceeding from the Son in the New Testament here. He's still distinct in personhood, but what is the relationship of the, of the persons of the Trinity? If you want to be fancy with it, what is the, the inner workings, the inner relationship within the Godhead? Now realize this is deep mystery for us. Deep mystery for we'll never understand what is, how do we understand the Trinity? But we can understand it here that, yes, there are one God who is eternally existing in three persons. But here, what's the relationship of these three persons? What is the inner workings of these three persons? That this is an eternal relationship of the Father begetting the Son and the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. The internal relationship with the Trinity, in other words, how they relate to each other, where the Father begets the Son, and the Spirit is proceeded from the Father and the Son. You have to see the distinctions here that's so clear in Scripture, just to give us a peek into the triune God of three persons eternally existing there within the Godhead. Obviously, this doesn't refer to any inferiority between them in terms of majesty or essence or glory. He's not speaking that because the Spirit proceeds from the Father. He's not saying that he's inferior, but he is speaking of the relationship, the eternal relationship within them. There's obviously the idea of the, the outer workings of the Trinity that happens in time where the Trinity, the, the, the Trinity was involved in creation. Where in the beginning, that would happen at a point in time where God created the world. That's in time. But here... And these inner workings of the Trinity, that's not speaking of time. This is an eternal act. And what I mean when I say an eternal act, it is that without time. It's outside the concept of the time. So for the Father to beget the Son is not something that's done in time, as if the Son is created. And for the Spirit to proceed from the Father and the Son is not something that's done in time, as if at one point in time the Spirit proceeded from the Father and Son. No, no, no. This is continual and eternal act where the Father begets the Son eternally. And the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son eternally. So we can say that he is equal with the Father and the Son. There is a distinction there between the inner workings, which are eternal, outside of the concept of time, how they relate to each other, and also how the triune God works outside in creation in time. Now, I know if you don't understand, if you don't understand it fully, don't worry. You have an eternity ahead of you to begin to understand it. And even still, you won't. It'll be an eternal act of you learning, an everlasting act of you learning and growing the beauty of the triune God. But we have to say with clarity that he is equal with the Father and the Son in glory and essence while distinct in his personhood. It's very clear here. So he is distinct from the Father and the Son. But even more, look how the Lord describes his ministry. He describes his Holy Spirit as, in the very beginning of this verse, a helper. He's a helper. The Holy Spirit is described as a helper. Literally what's been used because of the Greek term that's used is, is the paraclete. That he is the paraclete. You want to break that word down? Paraclete. Para meaning to, to come alongside. The cleat having the root word of to call. I like how R.C. Sproul describes it. Is the, the, the idea of coming alongside and call. He describes it as like a family attorney on retainer. And whenever you need help, you can call him and he'll come alongside to help you. That gives us a good picture of that. But he's, he's described here as the helper, the paraclete. And this term here as a helper, it's only used five times in the New Testament. It's only used five times. Four of the five times, it's used to refer to the Holy Spirit. And the fifth time, it refers to Jesus in 1 John chapter 2. 
when speaking with, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous. This term advocate is the same word that can be used. It's an advocate or helper. It's, it's some other translations use a comforter. But it's the same idea, the same word here. Four times speaking of the Holy Spirit. The fifth time, 1 John chapter 2, speaking of Jesus. In John chapter 14, the chapter before, in verse 16, he, Jesus describes his Holy Spirit as another helper. He says, I will send, when, I'll send you another helper, implying who is the other helper? Himself. That he is the helper. So the work of the Holy Spirit, he, he supplements the ministry of Christ. Because Christ is our, the, the first paraclete, if you will. He's the first paraclete who came to strengthen us by his atoning death. And now the empowerment to live the life that Christ has called us to live comes by the empowerment and enablement of the Holy Spirit, our helper. He's described as a helper who proceeds from the Father. And because he proceeds from the Father, he is one equal to Jesus who can thus take his place with full adequacy. I think we need to reflect a little bit about how how precious it is, how great and how valuable it is, believer, that you have a helper. That Jesus describes the third person of the Trinity as a helper to you. I'm going to send you a helper, another helper. That you have, as has been said this morning already, the helper, the Holy Spirit indwelling in you. That's done at the time of your conversion. That when you were born again, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. That you have God living inside of you. And yes, the Lord has ascended and he's coming back, but he has not left you without a helper. That you have a paraclete. You have one who can come alongside you. You have one you can call upon in your time of need. And that spirit, that helper, will remind you of truth in your deepest of darkness. That helper will remind you of your calling when you feel lost. That helper will remind you of your identity when we're tempted to go back to our old man. That helper will remind you and testify of Christ that you remind yourself of the helper that the Lord has left for you, a helper to remind you of help in your time of trouble, that he comforts his disciples with this truth, that yes, I'm leaving, and yes, you're sad, but it's better for me that I go, because when I go, you will have a helper, and he will indwell you, and he will empower you, and he will strengthen you, he will sanctify you, he reminds you of my glory, and he will change you by that. Remind yourself of this helper that the Lord encourages disciples that we ought to be encouraged by today as well. So as the Lord provides a sneak peek into our triune God, he has not left the world without a witness. This witness is the Holy Spirit who will testify about the Son. But it's important that the instrument the Holy Spirit uses, which leads us to our second witness, it's the witness of the apostles. That this mysterious work of the Spirit is, is not done in isolation from the church. That the Lord has left a witness, and it's not done in isolation from the church. The apostles, especially in this context, were to bear witness of the facts that they had come to know. That they were to be a witness to that very fact. In the same way the Spirit is going to testify about Christ, the apostles were to testify about Christ because they had been with him from the beginning, as he says. In verse 27, he says, you will testify also. Also, why? Because the Spirit's testifying. So you will also testify. Why? Because you have been with me from the beginning. Because they had been with him from the beginning. They had seen everything. They saw his ministry. They could testify about these truths. In other words, we can say they were qualified. They were a legitimate witness to the stand because they were eyewitnesses. That They saw it. They could attest to that. At the end of this gospel, chapter 21, John, who wrote this gospel, is writing in verse 24. He says that this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. That why can John say this? Because he was a testimony, a witness to this testimony. That he witnessed it. He saw it. And even more, in 1 John chapter 1, before he begins that epistle, he just uses such strong eyewitness testimony to show what, why what he's saying is true. 
he begins in 1 John that what was from the beginning, but look how he describes it now. What was from the beginning, that's not, that's not enough. What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, again, he's going back, his own eyewitness testimony, what we have seen and what we have heard, we proclaim to you also. That because they've been with him from the beginning, they can testify with certainty and with authority because they saw it with their own eyes. They touched it. They saw him. They heard. The Christian faith is not an illogical faith. We're not against facts. But the truth of the matter is, the facts support the faith. The faith doesn't stand because of the facts. His word is true all by itself. But the eyewitnesses attest to the very truth in God's word. The Christian faith is not an illogical faith. It is attested by eyewitness accounts. Eyewitnesses who wrote from their own accounts. Even supporting from other eyewitnesses. And not only that, these eyewitnesses were willing to die gruesome deaths for truths that they knew to be true. Like how can these, all these apostles, they're willing to, to get crucified? Peter upside down for this? Like what's in it for him? But eternal life because he knew, because he saw, because he heard. This is an eyewitness account. The Christian faith is not illogical, but rather it is completely logical. And the only way to understand that facts is when you see it through the sun. So these witnesses here, we see the first witness in 26, the Holy Spirit, and the second witness, the apostles. These are not two separate witnesses per se, but rather the disciples' witness were empowered by the Holy Spirit, which is the important thing to understand. That it's not separate witnesses, the Holy Spirit and the apostles, but rather the apostles' witness is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because as the apostles witnessed, as they saw, the Holy Spirit persuaded and people were saved. That people came to faith through the lives of the apostles in their ministry because the Holy Spirit was persuading, was convicting, was convincing through their ministry, through their witness. That's why Jesus, in Luke's account at the end, he tells them, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. And what is that promise? The Spirit, in Luke 24, 49. And he says, you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That Jesus knew what his disciples, he knew what was ahead of them. He knew the the tough road ahead of them. But he told them, wait here until you are clothed with power from on high. In other words, this witness that you're going to do, this witness you're going to serve as, you're not going to do in your own strength. You need power. But guess what? You got power coming to you. It's the Holy Spirit. And you're going to receive that power from on high. And you can do great things. I just want to survey the first couple of chapters of Acts real fast, just to see how this witness of the apostles actually did spread and how it went forth in the power of the Holy Spirit. I just want you to see it with your own eyes, Acts chapter 1, beginning there. That how did the second witness of the apostles, how did it further the ministry of Christ? The book of Acts here, it's written um, by Luke as an account to, to Theophilus, and he's basically detailing the spread of Christianity. How did it spread from this, this one city in Jerusalem to Judea? to Samaria, to the utter parts of the world. How did it spread? Look at verse 8 in chapter 1. This is Jesus speaking again. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. He says that you will receive power, and that power is going to result in spreading this message to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then chapter 2 is the day of Pentecost, when this actually happens, when they're clothed with power from on high. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. They're baptized in the Spirit. They receive the Spirit, and now they're empowered. Now, from that, chapter 3, Peter is essentially doing just what he's been instructed to do, to preach that message. And in chapter 3, he says in verse 14, he's speaking to the Jews. He's, he's trying to evangelize them. And he says, but you, rebuking them, you disown the holy and righteous one, Jesus, 
and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You went to Barabbas instead of the Lord. In verse 15, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead. And what does he say about that fact? A fact to which we are witnesses. He is testifying as a witness that he saw it. And he's saying, you crucified the Lord. And we were witnesses to that fact. But then even going on, he says they witnessed in chapter 4, they, they kept witnessing, even in spite of this, they kept witnessing, even though they were thrown in jail. And in verse 8, it says, that chapter 4, verse 8, then Peter, look what, how he describes him, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he began to preach them again. That even though persecuted, hated by the world, right? That sounds familiar. I think someone told him that already. Even though they were hated by the world, thrown in jail, he was filled with the Spirit and still began to speak to them, even though being thrown in jail, even though being hated. And then continue on. They, they ask him, say, okay, they bring the apostles in. You guys got to stop talking about this name, Jesus. You got to stop preaching. You got to stop witnessing. You need to stop testifying to these things. In verse 20, he's not bothered by them. They don't care. What does he say to that fact when the rulers bring them in? Verse 20 of chapter 4, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. Say, like, I don't care what you say. I'm going to still keep preaching Christ because I've seen it and I've heard it and I'm not going to stop speaking about these things. I'm going to continue to testify of the Son. That they continue to testify even in spite of the opposition that they received. And so when they came back after this time, they were released and they told everyone what happened in verse 31 of the same chapter. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then what happened when they were filled with the Holy Spirit? They began to speak the word of God with boldness, with boldness. That they were not just sitting here, just sitting around the corner, like, do you want to hear it? No, with boldness. They didn't care about the opposition. They didn't care about chains. They didn't care about jail. They didn't care about losing their family. They didn't care about losing their job. They didn't care about losing royalty. They didn't care about losing friendships. They spoke the word of God with boldness, he says, because they were filled with the Spirit. This is Spirit-empowered ministry, that they were filled with the Spirit and therefore spoke with boldness. They were testifying to what they had seen and what they had heard. Then they were arrested again. In chapter 5, verse 18, they laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. But I love what happens right after that, verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taken them out. Now, they went to jail again, not phased by it, but the angel freed them. And then again, they were brought before the council again. What do we tell you all the first time? Did you not learn? And he tells, he tells them to stop preaching about this name. <clears throat> stop preaching about this name. But in chapter 5, verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, Mm-mm, nah, nah, chief. We got to obey God rather than man. Where does that boldness come from? These men were filled with the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit to stand against men, to proclaim the message, to testify about the Son. We must obey God rather than man. And they made it known, verse 32, he says, and we are witnesses of these things, he says. Well, I guess maybe for context, in verse 31, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. They're not going to stop this. In verse 32, and we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. That they're not going to stop. They made it known. We are witnesses. We will not stop preaching Christ. So back in our passage in John chapter 15, Jesus says, the spirit will testify. But he says, you will testify also. We see, what does that testimony look like? It is spirit-empowered witness, testifying about Christ, drawing the lost into himself. Like that's what spirit-empowered witness. Now I want to look at the remainder of our time, by implication, if that's true, the Lord left the witness of his spirit, the witness of the apostles, then by implication, we must look at what is our witness in the world today. What is your witness in the world today? Now, I want you to think about it like a relay race, any relay race, right? What happens in order to move from one runner to the next runner? You got to pass that baton. You got to pass that baton. 
You can't mess it up. You got to make sure it's handed intact hand to hand. If it falls, you got to pick it up. You got to start, start back where it was and you got to pick it up hand to hand and keep running, right? In a relay race here, we're in a line of faithful men and women who have stood for the gospel of Christ. And we have to take the baton in our hands, not drop it. In other words, do not mess up the message of Christ. Do not mess up the gospel. Do not mess up the person of Christ. Do not mess up the doctrine of the Trinity. Do not mess up sound doctrine. Take that baton in your hand and preserve it and keep it intact and then proclaim it and run with it until you die, passing it on to the next generation. That we are in a long line of faithful saints who have died for the message of Christ. And if you are called to die for the message of Christ, so be it. You will die because you know whom you have seen, whom you have heard. You have not seen him with your eyes, but by faith the Spirit of God is testifying upon those whom he have called to see the glory of Christ. And that has gripped your souls. So if you die for the message of Christ, so be it. But what we know we will do is we will run. And we will run swiftly, seeking for the high calling of Christ, because we know whom we have believed. We know whom we have heard. And so if you are called to suffer, if you are called to, 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 to die, if you are called to be hated for his name's sake, so be it, brethren. You have the Spirit inside of you. You are indwelled by the Spirit, and you need to be filled with the Spirit constantly to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel that has saved you. You must be a Spirit-empowered saint. You must be. You cannot expect to survive any hatred or persecution in your life if you are not empowered by the Holy Spirit. There is no way the Lord has left you a paraclete, a helper, to stand with you, to help you in your time of need. That we must bear witness. The apostles bore witness. You can back up. The Father bore witness of the Son. The Son bore witness of himself. The Spirit testified of the Son. The apostles testified of the Son. The church fathers testified of our Son. Generations before us testified of the Son. And you will testify of the Son. You must bear witness. Hope you realize the important aspect of this is the content of that witness. That your message, your witness, your testimony must testify of Christ. That if the Spirit testifies of Christ, what makes you think you're any different, right? I mean, what are we going to testify about other than the Lord Jesus Christ? Because notice here, the issues in our world today are not about which religion is, is the right religion. Like, that's, that debate is far surpassed us. But it's really about, like, it's finding true equality, true justice. What is righteousness? What is love? There are many cries of the world today that are crying for what is equality? What is love? What is justice? What is peace? What is all this hope? What are we striving for? How do I become a better me? You see the issues that are really crying out in sinful man's culture today. What is the response? What is the testimony? How do we respond to a culture and a people that are hurting and dying today? We must testify of the Son. You testify. How does Christ speak to the greatest needs of mankind today? It is not to give you a happy life. It is not to make you wealthy or happy or easy. You testify, but how does the message of Christ speak to the aches of today? The content of our message does not change. We too must testify of the Son. We don't gloss over these issues. We don't set them aside, but rather we see, well, where is true justice found in Christ who bore the wrath of God in sinful man's place? So if you want justice, true justice, you realize Fairness man's demands, we all demand hell, but justice can be found in Christ, bore the wrath of God for sin, so that if you look upon the Son, he will declare you righteous, and that's true justice. True justice is found in being righteous before God who made you. If you want to find true love, love begins with God who gave his son for you. If you want to talk about equality, there is no equality apart from the work that's done in Christ's body. When he united Jew and Gentile, making us equal, that's where it begins. You speak to the issues of the world, but do not lose the content of Christ. If you lose Christ, then take off the cross off this church. 
Like, what are you here for? It's about Christ. How do you testify to this world today that's hurting, to your relatives, to your kids, to your spouses, to your family members, to your neighbors? Do you realize many are going to hell hour by hour, minute by minute, people are entering eternity, and we must testify of the glorious gospel of Christ. Testify also that our testimony must be spirit-empowered and our content must also be Christ. I asked in the beginning, when I was speaking of the apostles' death, what resolve must it have? What resolve must they have to have died the death they died for their faith? What resolve? But I want to ask a different question, a better question. What spirit dwelt in them that dwells in you? We can look at, wow, what strength it took for them to die and to be crucified upside down. But let's ask a better question. What spirit dwelt in the apostles that dwells in you. Instead of marveling at the greatness of what they went through, although that is honorable, I'm, not, I'm saying, but look at the same spirit that dwelt in them, dwells in you. And because he dwells in you, the same combination of human obedience coupled with the witness of the spirit is needed in every generation. That they had to testify, but they also needed the Holy Spirit. You see, this human obedience is coupled with the divine ministry of the Holy Spirit, and that's needed in every generation. So we can face opposition with the same resilience that the apostles faced it in Acts chapter 40, verse 20. I cannot stop speaking about what I've seen and what I have heard. I don't know much. I don't know all the answers to your questions, but let me tell you this. Let me tell you my personal testimony. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Why? Because Christ, Christ, Christ. What other content of our testimony is sufficient but Christ, but Christ, but Christ? So we settle nothing less Spirit-driven ministry, spirit proclamation, that we cannot be a faithful witness without the Holy Spirit. Now, I realize when we read Acts and we see the accounts of the Spirit filling them and moving, we, we have to be reminded here that this is describing the spread of the gospel ministry. That's the purpose of Acts, to describe how the gospel spread from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's the purpose of the book. Sometimes when we see this, we can tend to prescribe that everything that happened in there means I I need to live out in the same way. Like all the miracles that happened in that way, I need to be doing that. We can fall into the danger of seeing this descriptive book as a prescriptive resource for us, if you get that distinction. I'm not saying we don't follow in the footsteps of faithfulness, but I'm saying we can confuse that, the the idea of being spirit-filled with this emotional idea of I need to be spiritually filled and this emotional idea of these, these highs I need to have in order to do this. And that's what we need to be careful of. That we need to be careful of the emotionally driven, spirit-driven thought. Now, I'm not saying here, being spirit-filled, you're going to have highs, but you're also going to have lows, and you can still be spirit-filled. But if we want to look at what it means to be spirit-filled, there's no account, no verse in the New Testament that asks, that we are commanded to ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You won't find that. We're commanded to ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But... Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, we are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So instead of focusing on this emotional response of, I need, to, I need to ask for this Holy Spirit to be filled in me. No, you need to be filled, which is a passive command. In other words, you can't fill yourself. You need to be filled by the Holy Spirit, that he is the one who does the filling. But how does he do the filling? He's the agent of that filling. In other words, he is the one who fills us, but the content of his filling is Christ. So how do we, are we filled with the Holy Spirit in such a way that it controls us, it, it, it dominates our affections, our desires, our actions? How are we to be filled with the Holy Spirit so I can have an emboldened life for Christ? It is to be filled with the content of Christ. To be filled with his word. If you notice after that in Ephesians chapter 5, it talks about singing and encouraging one another with spiritual hymns. This, this idea of, of spiritual maturity among the body. That we are encouraging one another. We're filled with the things of God. We are encouraging other people of that same truth. And we're built up in these things. 
That if we want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we need to be filled with the things of God. In other words, Christ and how we filled with Christ through his truth. To be filled with the very word of God so that we can be emboldened by the spirit of God who brings to life his word upon our lives in a way that impacts how we live. So we prayerfully seek God's help in his spirit to give me boldness. I'm not saying it's wrong to ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't think that's the wrong prayer to ask. I'm just steering away from the, the primary motivation where we're only focusing on asking and never being filled by seeking the primary means he has sought for us, which is Christ. Be filled with Christ, the things of God in us. You prayerfully seek God's help to open the eyes of that lost person at your work. Prayerfully ask God to open the eyes of your neighbor, of my children, of my family. Lord, help me to testify of you and you alone. And when I testify, I'm bringing to them nothing but the message of Christ and Christ crucified and how that bears life on everything in their life. It demands your all. This is where true hope is found. This is where true justice is found. This is where true life is found. It's found in Christ. And I'm proclaiming the message with the baton in hand, keeping it intact, and I am testifying of the Son and the power of the Spirit. And I'm trusting him to open the eyes of whom he wills. Whenever a true servant of God bears witness against the world, the witness is the work of the Spirit. I mean, whenever just a simple believer, just by word and example, draws others to Christ, this too is a work of the Spirit. The Spirit always testifies in connection with the Word, the Word of Christ. And we have to be reminded, of course, I think we know this, but the, the arena of this proclamation is not just in the pulpit. That we don't want to just tell this dying world from the pulpit, you know, just just come to church so you can hear the message, although that's good. But tell them yourself. Tell them of this message as a dying man preaching to dying men that Christ can save you too because he saved me. That if our message, if our witness is spirit-empowered, that if it's done by the power of the spirit, in reliance upon the spirit, seeking to preach with clarity the full proclamation of Christ, then it should bring an unaltering humility in our lives. That we should preach and proclaim to a dying world with humility the message of Christ. R.C. Sproul said that Christians have nothing to be smug about. Nothing to be smug about. Because we're not a righteous people trying to correct unrighteous people. That's not the idea here. But rather, as he said, as one preacher said, that evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. And that's what we are. Is that, I, look, I'm not better than you. I, I, I'm, I'm not more worthy than you. I'm not more honorable than you. I am a wretch, a dying sinner that was dying until Christ gave me life. And I'm just one beggar. And I'm trying to tell you where to get bread too. That there is a humility, realizing that this is spirit-empowered ministry. Our goal is faithfulness to keep the baton intact and to pass it on, trusting in the work of the Spirit and asking him to work upon the lives of dead and souls. That we should be humbled by this blessed ministry to proclaim as a witness to the dying world that Christ, Christ crucified. Let's pray. Father, we need this truth, be emboldened by this truth. And we do thank you, God, that you have given us a helper, a paraclete, to sustain us. And God, I pray that we would be emboldened by that truth, that, Lord, we would seek to walk in humility and to preach to this world and to preach to our own souls and to be reminded of the helper that we have, that Christ has come and he's coming again. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.